and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Nicole Penny. Nicole Penny is a folklorist and archivist living and working in St. John's, Newfoundland. She holds a BA in Folklore and English Lit and an MA in Public Folklore from Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador. She currently works full-time at the Munn Medical Founders Archive and part-time on the room's Provincial Archives Reference Desk. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted you're here. It's nice. It's nice to see you again. It's good to see you. Yeah. Full disclaimer, you used to work for me. That was... uh, I did, yes. (laughs) So we've met before. We have met before. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be be together again. Um, So today, I want to have a chat with you about digitization, uh, what it is and and kind of uh, the work that you're doing and and maybe some tips and tricks for for people who are interested in in digitization. Um, What are you doing right now? You just posted on social media that uh, you had digitized in the past five months something like uh, 9,000 scans from a collection that you're working on. Yeah, I uh, I posted, I scanned about 9,069 scans. I'll, I'll round, that'll come up to 10,000 pretty soon. And uh, what I'm doing is I'm uh, employed with uh, the Faculty of Medicine at the um, Medical Founders Archive over, it's located in the Health Science Library. And uh, unfortunately, the collection I'm working on is highly restricted, so I can't talk about the subject matter. Uh, you're, you're like the Agent Carter of digitization. I am. Yeah. I am. It's really, <laughs> yeah, it's really secretive. I can't talk about it too much. It's also like the Fight Club of digitization. <laughs> you're not you know, to talk about digitization. Yeah, don't talk about digitization. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I do work in the the Medical Founders Archive, so you can probably. You know, figure it has something to do with uh, medicine in Newfoundland and Labrador. And considering that I've done almost 10,000 scans in just under five months, it is a large collection. Um, so it's quite the undertaking, but it's uh, really interesting to work on. And, um, you know, in time, it will be made available up on uh, Memorial University's Digital Archives Initiative. Yeah, so what is the what is the Digital Archives Initiative, for those who don't know? So um, the Digital Archives Initiative, or the DAI, as it's commonly referred to, um, is a database through which um, organizations such as different heritage and archives and museums groups in the province can make their materials and collections available to a wider audience who may not be able to actually physically go to those places. Um, So, for example, when I was working with you down in the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office, I was doing documentation about such things as basketry, um, forestry, high steel, and uh, was making those collections available on the DAI for the public. Right. So it's all about providing access. Providing and, access, and, and yeah. Getting people to, to, to be able to see these documents that are that can contain wonderful historical treasures. Exactly. Yeah. It's great. It's a great resource uh, for people. And if people are interested in, in the Digital Archives Initiative, that's that's uh, available online. And anyone can access it. You don't have to be a, a, a Memorial University faculty or student. You can go to collections.mun.ca, and, and there's amazing, amazing stuff there that's been digitized, book collections, audio collections, uh, the Newfoundland Quarterly, every thesis that's ever been done in the in the, the university. It's, it's yeah. remarkable. I've been highly recommending it um, over the past few years because it's um, really... Uh, a substantial collection. It's grown so much since it started. It's a very, um, very secure database. You can feel confident putting your materials on there, knowing that they'll stay there. 
And um, for anybody interested, there is a great deal of World War One material on there, oh, yeah. uh, which people are very interested in. Yeah. And so that's something that I, I've been recommending people, you know, go check out. Yeah, I, I found it very useful with the last book project that I was working on. Uh, one of the other things that it contains is a large number of digitized newspapers. Uh, and that is a remarkable resource for writers and researchers because it's all keyword searchable now. It used to be, back in my day, which wasn't that long ago, uh, it used to be that if you were looking for information that was held in historic newspapers, it was all on microfiche. And you had to kind of sit there at the microfiche and go through day by day by day hoping to find something. And now you can go to the digital archive. You can type in whatever search term you're looking for and it'll it'll pop up. Yeah, I know. It's wonderful. I watched this uh, video the other day and it was teenagers looking at encyclopedias and they had never <laughs> seen them before and didn't know what they were and they didn't understand even how to use them. And yeah. it's amazing when... Um, you know, you can have a, a database like that where it's keyword searchable and students can use it. I recommend it to people of all ages. You know, at the rooms, we have uh, very young researchers coming in, working on their heritage projects. And even somebody school age, you know, um, can uh, easily access the DAI. So what was your introduction to doing digitization? Um, my first digitization job was a SWAS position. Um, that is a... a one of the student positions that can be made available here at Memorial University. Um, they're excellent if you want to get real experience in your field. What I was doing was um, <clears throat> I was just looking for work. I just wanted to work um, within folklore. That's what I knew I wanted to do. So one day I uh, saw the SWASP advertisement and I called uh, Professor Philip Hiscock in the folklore department and said, do you have any work you'd like me to do? Um, I'd like to do a SWASP. And he said, well, I can find something for you. And I started uh, reformatting mini discs that he had of oral histories with a woman in mobile. It was a large collection. And I transferred those to CD for him. Now, this was 2004. So mini discs are obsolete now. And CDs are actually not uh, the format that you would digitize to yeah. anymore. Yeah, technology changes so fast it, in this field. Yeah, It does. It changes very quickly. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, now that was several years ago, mm -hmm. like over a decade ago. Uh, and you're still working on digitization projects. Uh, I, I know you can't really talk about the specifics of the collection that you're working on now, but these are print uh, records that you're digitizing? Most of what I digitize ends up being print. So yeah. um, be it manuscripts, photographs, um, documents of all sorts. Um, that ends up being some of the stuff that I digitize the most. Yeah. I was doing um, reproductions with the rooms, and mostly there it was photographs. Photographs, yeah, yeah. So say say you are working with a, a historic photograph, and we're, we'll assume that by the time it comes to, to you, the person that's doing digitization, for the most part, these are accessioned documents. They're already in the, the archival collection. Um, so say you say someone has a historic photograph and they're interested in 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 digitizing that to 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 put it online or to, or to share it digitally what are the process what's the process what are the steps that you go through to digitize something like a, starting with print records okay well if you are an individual um, there's a bit of a different process that you want to look at as opposed to an individual as opposed to an archive if you're just one person and you want to digitize some family photographs <clears throat> 
Well, you want to make sure that first you have a scanner and your computer. And um, you'll want um, some basic photo editing software. Um, most computers will come with something, you know, um, just the basic thing, um, just in case you need to do some cropping or things like that. But basically what you'll do is you'll look at your photograph, and if it looks like it's something that can be scanned, um, you know, you do a bit of conservation, um, but most of the time photographs are perfectly fine to be scanned. And um, you would scan it to a file type that would be what's called lossless. Um, and one of those file types, the one that I use the most, is a TIFF, T-I-F-F. And it's best to save to that file type uh, because you don't lose any quality uh, in your image. Yeah, I was going to ask you to ex maybe explain the difference between a lossless mm -hmm. and a lossy format. Yep. So um, a lossy format, such as a JPEG, um, each time that you open it, edit it, resave it, um, you lose quality. Um, so after a period of time, um, the image would um, look different. It wouldn't be as uh, crisp. The contrast wouldn't be as good. Um, if you're working for an institution, um, especially an archival institution, when you scan a photograph, you try to get to preserve the original image as best you can. Um, so once you scan it, you want um, a format that will not lose quality. And so then you would use um, a lossless format, which, like I said, like TIFF. Mm -hmm. And then you can open that, you can edit it, you can do what you like with it, and you'll never lose quality. Right. So even if people are doing, uh, you know, if they have a shoebox of old family photos at home, you would still recommend that people um, scan it first at that high resolution lossless uh, lossless format. Definitely. Yeah. Because even if you're doing something at home, you never know what you might end up doing with that photograph. Um, it's always good to scan things at at least 600 DPI, which means dots per inch. And basically what that is, is a high enough quality so that if you decide to enlarge the photograph or use it for, um, you know, any sort of graphic, say a magazine or anything, you'll be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's best to scan an archival item at uh, a TIFF at at least 600 DPI. And uh, so then you don't have to go back and rescan it if you want to do something else with it. Right. So when you're scanning at the archive, is that is that the resolution to which you scan or do you scan at a higher resolution ever? Um, it would depend on the item. Say if I had a really small photograph that I was scanning for the purpose to make a panel with and the graphic artist needed very high quality, I would probably scan at 1200 DPI so that we could uh, see, you know, get a clear image. However, most archives, it's perfectly fine to go with 600 because what you have to remember is that um, the higher DPI and when you're using um, a lossless format, you have a lot of virtual space that you require. Mm -hmm. That can actually be one of the biggest challenges of undertaking a large digitization project is remembering that you need to have lots and lots of space on your hard drive or have an external hard drive and remember to back it up. And back and, it up, and back, and it, back, up back it up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's an important thing for people to remember when they're when they're doing any kind of computer-based uh, project. You know that that we are every piece of 
uh, technology that we use is fallible. It will it will break. Every piece of technology you use will eventually wear out or break or become you know corrupt in some way. Um, so it is good to have those multiple multiple backups in multiple locations. You know, it's it's always good because you always hear these horror, sto- horror stories of people having oh you know I scanned all these photos and then you know we had a flood and, I, and my hard drive was washed out to sea or something. You know, and I always remember <laughs> the first time I was working with you. Yeah, that. Um, I was backing my material up meticulously, and um, then I was very glad that I did because our office got broken into yeah, and my a, laptop got yeah. stolen where there was a theft, and uh, and I didn't lose any material because I had uh, kind of uh, compulsively backed everything up. <laughs> yeah, compulsively backing up stuff is a good trait to have. But that's a have. good yeah. trait to have when you're doing digitization projects. Yeah. Um, right now, I back everything up to... An external hard drive locally on my computer's hard drive on CDs and also on uh, the university's uh, server. Right. Yeah, that's good. I think for people who are listening at home, this idea of, of you know, scanning at a large resolution, the, the important thing I think for people to remember is that you can always go smaller with a file. You oh, can, definitely. You can always, if you have a huge file, you can always reduce that file size. to uh, People like JPEGs because they're, they're shareable online. You can put them on websites. You can use them on Facebook. Um, but you can't go the other way. You can't no. take a small file and make it bigger. You know, you, once you've scanned it, that's the resolution that it's the maximum resolution that it will ever be. Exactly. Yeah. And it's so easy to convert TIFFs to JPEG. All you really need to do is have a simple piece of um, editing software for images. You know, I use uh, Photoshop, um, but you can usually you know you use picasa or something like that and you can do batch conversions you know i i will scan a couple hundred documents and then do a whole batch conversion to jpeg and it does it in a few moments yeah and there's great online resources mm-hmm. like if you don't know how to do any of this there's probably a youtube video that will oh teach my god you yes yeah. <laughs> you know i uh i i come across um different uh mediums all the time in digitization you yeah. know i'm uh I'll be 30 next month. I don't have a lot of experience with reel to reel, just because you know, like that's not the the format that was you know it's been very popular in my lifetime. But if I needed to digitize that, you know, I could go online and figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Now uh, the other thing that people often have uh, at home uh, that they're interested in digitizing are old VHS tapes. So now if someone has, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that dance recital or their cousin's wedding that they, from 1984, that they want to, to digitize and see again, what can people do to digitize some of that stuff? Well, you need a VCR is right, the first which thing. which is getting harder to find. It's just getting yeah. harder to find. Um, what uh, I like to do is I go to yard sales. <laughs> yes. I actually have about three VCRs in my <laughs> house now. I, I collect old technology so that I can use it for reformatting, yeah. um, for digitization. Um, you'll notice I sometimes say reformatting um, because I'm not always turning things digital. I've been asked to turn digital back to analog. So sometimes in my job, I'm just basically changing the format of the material. So sometimes I do say reformatting, but um, yeah, most of the time it just means the same thing. But you do need, yeah, so for your VHS, you do need a VCR, Mm -hmm. and then you do need some sort of capture device. Um, Walmart is a place where you can pick up um, a device that goes from the VCR 
um, plugs into your VCR, plugs into your computer, and then you pop your VHS into um, the VCR and you get it going. And this little device has internal memory that will capture the video and then output it to its own um, video editing program. It does it all in real time. Which, so if you have an hour-long tape, it's going to take you an hour. Yes. Yeah. And that is one thing that I really emphasize to places that are interested in doing video digitization or audio digi- digitization is that you have to realize it's all in real time and you have you really can't just put it in and walk away. You have to quality check. Um, you have to ensure that the video and the sound are syncing up as it's going along. And it can be quite the undertaking. Um, fortunately, if you can find a, v- a VCR, it's relatively inexpensive. The capture device, um, those sorts of items can be bought at Walmart for under $100. It's not, digitization is not really expensive when it comes to ma- the materials. The issue is the time. Right. Yeah. It's the labor. That, it's that the labor. It. It's yeah. the time. And then thinking about, how best can I keep these files so that they can be used 10 years from now, 20 years from now? So everybody needs to have a migration or conversion plan as well. Yeah, yeah. Because the formats that we're using today, we don't know what's going to come exactly. in, in 10 or 20 years. Like I said, in 2004, I was tra- I was transferring um, audio recordings from mini disc to just a CD. Mm-hmm. Now, today, CD is not really the most acceptable way to store archival materials. Um, they used to say that CDs had a lifespan of about 100 years. Now, it's about 25. Yeah. And if the CD is played regularly, it's probably 5 or 10. Yeah. And um, it also depends on the quality of the CD. You can purchase um, archival quality CDs. However, if you're going out and getting them from, say, Staples, um, they may not last as long. Yeah. So these are some things that are important to think about. And, and I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that DVDs even have a, a shorter shelf life than, than CDs because they have more layers in the physical makeup of the DVD. So they're more likely to delaminate over time than a, than a CD will. Yeah. yeah. And that is, um, that's a big struggle with, with the CD and, and DVDs as a form of preservation is uh, simply you're really not sure how long it's going to last. Yeah. Yeah. And these days, everyone's taking 800 photos, you know, a day on their phones, you know, and so we have this incredible um, amount of digital material that we are collecting. And maybe we're not thinking about it archiving. You know, people used to have, uh, you know, scrapbooks of photos. And those things can take some damage. Like they can, they, they last for a long time. But your, you know, your cell phone, you know, you drop that in the toilet once and all your photos are, are gone, you know. Um, so what, what, what do you think people should think about? You know, if they, if they have a large body of, of digital material, what, what, should they, what should they do? I mean, we talked about backing stuff up, but should they, should they archive that stuff online or should they have a digital, uh, sorry, an external hard drive or combination? One of um, the, the questions that gets posed to me is, should I be um, accessing the cloud? You know, making, uh, should I put my things on one of these servers? And um, <clears throat> unless it's associated with a large institution, such as Memorial University, I don't entirely put my trust into those. Yeah. Any um, private company running um, a server could go out of business at any time. 
What I recommend to individuals um, with their own family photographs is put as much of that as you can on USBs, SD cards, and have off-site storage. So, you know, you'll have your copies at home that you can access, email around to your family, print off, um, but then take, you know, as many USBs as you need, um, put everything on there, and put them in your safety deposit box. Yeah. Or trade them with another family member. Yeah, make sure that your cousins have exactly. copies of all the photos. That's a nice thing about having digital material is that it's very easy to make copies. You know, Whereas with print photos, for example, it's a more laborious process for making copies of these things. We talked about audio material a, a little bit. I think this is one of the things that uh, community museums or community archives probably have you know, in a box uh, under someone's desk. You know, They have this box of tapes. You know, that b- There were a lot of oral history projects that were done starting you know, back in the 60s, right up in up until tapes started to, to fade out. Um, what advice would you give to a community museum or an archive that has a box of a box of audio audio information, a bunch of old oral history tapes? If you have a, a box of tape cassettes, I would there's there's two options that I like right now. Um, you can purchase a tape cassette player and a digital voice recorder, and you can connect the two right to each other. And you can um, pull the audio from the tape cassette that way. Then you have your digital file on your recorder, and then you can transfer that to your computer. There are also some devices um, that kind of compact all that into one. It's a little, it looks like a little Walkman, and it's basically a USB um, tape, tape cassette player that you can connect directly to your computer. A little USB, yeah. For yeah. those of you who are old enough to remember what a Walkman looks yes. like. Yes, oh yeah. my God, yeah. <laughs> Walkman. <laughs> yeah, um, and again, it's not a terribly difficult process. Oh no, not yeah. at all. Yeah, and the equipment the equipment for, for audio digitization is actually pretty cheap. Like if you, if you have a tape recorder, generally there's an audio out, you know, or a headset jack that you can that you can plug into. The cables you can get at the source or whatnot, and they're pretty cheap, or you can buy them online. You can buy the patch cords you need at the dollar store. Yeah. You could probably get the tape cassette player at the dollar store. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the material, like I said, the materials you need are very inexpensive. And just if you're interested in digitization, go to yard sales, go to flea markets, you know, get out there and, and buy up as much of that stuff as you can. Because, you know, some of my VCRs are like 30 years old at this point. If one breaks, I've got another one. Yeah. Now, we talked about the difference between, you know, TIFF files and JPEG files for, for print files. What about for audio? What should you record in? Um, with audio, you can go as a WAV file, but I usually go um, MP3, and then your video would usually be MP4. Um, that's that's usually what I would digitize in. Yeah. I, the MP3s are nice because, they're, again, they're, they're slightly smaller and they're easier for sharing online and they're compatible with most kind of digital audio players these days. So, yeah. 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 That, and, and, you know, exactly. MP3 is, is really the, the most accessible file format to use. Yeah. yeah. The archival standard, I guess, is probably the WAV file, which is a, lar- a much larger yes, uncompressed file. Um, but then it's harder to share. And uh, yeah, and you, and you end up with these massive, massive files, particularly if you're doing an audio interview that's, if you're digitizing an audio interview that's like an hour long or an hour and a, hour and a half, you end up with these massive, massive files. Um, 
we start off talking about the importance of access, you know, that this is why we reformat, why we digitize. We want people to have access to these materials. Do you have thoughts on that? Like why, why that's important? Um, yeah, I actually, you know, although digitization is my bread and butter, I would never go in and do a digitization project with a group unless I felt they were doing it for access as opposed to conservation or preservation. Um, an archive... Um, an archive uh, can't always, you know, rely on that to preserve its its materials. Um, you should always keep your originals. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you have say say you're a community museum and you have this box of uh, oral history tapes, but you're not really set up to be an archive. Um, you can digitize the material, then you have a digital copy. What 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 could a community museum then do if they have a box of, of, of tapes that they've digitized and they don't really have an, an archive in their community? Yeah, a, a good way to make those accessible would be through uh, Memorial's Digital Archive Initiative. Yeah. And basically the process is, um, if anybody's interested in doing that, you can contact Don Walsh with the DAI, and he will set you up with how to write metadata. <laughs> so for people who, who don't get as excited about metadata as you do, what what is uh, what is metadata? Metadata is basically the descriptions um, that accompany a file. Um, to give um, the person accessing it the information that they need to know about the item. So if I was giving uh, the digital archive a photograph, for example, I would have a standard uh, title description. Um, I would have a description of the item itself. I would um, write in what file format that was done in, um, the source, um, who uh, provided it to the archive, material, um, different information so it's like in, that. It's information about information. Exactly. Yeah. And then you put that all into a, a you know an Excel spreadsheet, and you know. It's the geeky part. Yeah, it's the really geeky part. <laughs> but it's the part that ultimately makes that material accessible. Yes. You know, like the digital file uh, on a server is not particularly searchable, you know, unless it has the metadata that uh, goes with it. You yeah. Know? And, and um, we were talking about, I believe, um, keyword searching. And that's what your metadata does. Um, is make it does make it possible for somebody to go onto the DAI, put in a word like baskets or Migma baskets, and then they'll get the the collection that they're looking for. Yeah. So uh, so if a community museum has a, a you know this box of of tapes, they can digitize it. They can probably work out a partnership if they're in Newfoundland and Labrador. They can work out a partnartnership with the digital archive to to have that material made uh, accessible. And then that's a that's a, a long term kind of permanent storage. You mm-hmm. know, like and and then someone at Memorial will worry about migration to the next type of technology. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have to worry about that as your own little Hibs Hole Community Museum. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I highly recommend the DAI because um, it's very difficult for a very small institution to be able to think about um, wh- where these files will be 10 years down the road. Um, many small groups have few resources. They um, go through you know, students every summer and if you can outsource the migration and conversion to a place like Memorial University then you have the confidence of knowing that those files will be there 20 years from now. Yeah. And then I think your originals, you can do something similar with that as well. If you're a community museum,
museum, you have a box of tapes, you've digitized them, you can maintain a digital copy in your home institution. Um, but then those originals, maybe there's a home for them at the Provincial Archives or the Center for Newfoundland Studies, you know, places where they have a, a trained archivist who can deal with the physical con- conservation of those of those objects. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So what's next? What you are, you're going back to your little cold cubicle and uh, and digitizing more stuff? Is yes. This, yeah. And and so this is a year long contract with you with the Founders Archives, and you're working on one particular collection. I am. And but then do they have more stuff that needs to be digitized? Yes. So di- it's kind of a never ending job. It in a never way. ends. Yeah. Um. When I got into this 10 years ago, I never thought that it would be pretty much what I do right. at this point. I kind of fell into it uh, because a lot of people find digitization very repetitive. It's a methodical type of job, um, but I like that kind of work. And um, if you can find a niche doing something that other people generally don't enjoy or they find boring, then you'll, you'll keep finding work, which... <laughs> Ended up really working out for me. That's great. That's good. That's a good piece of advice. <laughs> so, uh, Nicole, thank you for coming on this. The I think officially the geekiest version of this show that we've had so far. I'm delighted that you could share that with us. I'm very proud to be your geekiest <laughs> guest so far. <laughs> that's a badge of honor in in our circles. I think uh, you've been listening to Living Heritage. I'm Dale Jarvis, and uh, this is a program of CHMR in cooperation with the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. The Heritage Foundation has been running the show, and we've been uh, podcasting these. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Uh, I'm Dale Jarvis, as I said, and our production assistant is Tara Barrett. Thank you for listening. <laughs>